do I have the right? Simply touch one wire against the other and that's it. The Daleks cease to exist. Hundreds of millions of people, thousands of generations can live without fear, in peace, and never even know the word Dalek. But I kill, wipe out a whole intelligent life form, then I become like them. I'd be no better than the Daleks. I'm Eddie Webb. Exterminate! I'm Chris and today, <laughs> I thought you were going to introduce all the way. Um, and today we're going to talk about Genesis of the Daleks on Genreless. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Genreless, where we have one of the moments where I kind of wish this was a video podcast because I keep changing the theme and I don't tell Chris when I do it. <laughs> He's always just amused and pleased when I do. <laughs> it's much like whenever I'm about to say my name. You're never sure if I'm really just going to say my name, how we're supposed to, on our note sheet, or if I'm going to go off on my own. And today I decided to merge the two together, which threw you off. So yeah, it's, it did. It's a good banter. We, we are... We are Definitely play, uh, swinging from the hip here, but um, I, 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 honestly, it's, got, it's almost hard to kind of to walk into this because, like, a lot of long-running franchises inevitably will have kind of an iconic story, right? Um, uh, and Star Trek, that's the Daleks, all seven episodes of it. That is yes. like the most iconic piece of Who history in existence. Uh, and certainly is worth every minute of the seven episodes that, that you watch for that so much that they're cutting it down to literally half the runtime. I bet you no one will notice. Um, oh, and before you laugh, Mr. Spivey, the next one they're going to do is the war games. So you get to watch the war games cut down to half its length and see how you feel about that. No, if we ever go back to Troughton, we're watching the OG war game, all <laughs> 10 episodes of it to watch Jamie zoe and the doctor run across a battlefield for like 30 minutes i think that war games was so long that there was an entire episode where it was either jamie yeah i think i was saying it was jamie was turned to another character because um the actor couldn't make the scheduling for yes. one episode of the war games where i remember right they, i don't know if they did the Games. i know they just did they did that in uh the mind robber which was when they went to land of fiction because his cousin came to play jamie <laughs> briefly because <laughs> he was out that day um uh, yeah, no, so this is, uh, like, again, like, uh, you know, Star Trek has Wrath of Khan, um, X-Men has Dark Phoenix Saga, so, like, over time, eventually, there's going to be certain stories that kind of uh, uh, become iconic in the literal sense, where it's, like, it is something that changes and enhances the iconography of the show, and the show will inevitably point back to it or have reference to it, and this is one of them, uh, uh, which... It's appropriate because it's also one of the more iconic doctors. Regardless of what you feel about the fourth doctor, how you feel about Tom Baker, it is hard to argue that, uh, particularly from an American perspective, he is the vision that a lot of people have when you mention Doctor Who, to the point where to this day, modern doctor actors will still be asked questions, where's your scarf, right? Um, Thank you, because I was about to, well, actually you, because you didn't, he didn't have the scarf yet. So therefore, he is not the vision that we Americans, because you're not in America, my friend. So I can <laughs> say we Americans over here, and God bless America. I would pick up dirt, dirt and throw it up in the air too and dance under it, but I'm inside of a house. <laughs> because you should have, 
never mind. That's another Jekyll will do. But anyway, he's lacking the scarf, so it loses some of the American vision that we have of Doctor Who. Well, right, and it's 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 so. There's a lot of things that's interesting and weird about uh, Genesis Doctor, just kind of in general. Uh, we're talking about it, it's an iconic story from this iconic Doctor, uh, and yet you're right. It's it's Tom Baker has not fully. This is his first season. And this is pr- about halfway through his first season. So he's still actually feeling out the role at this point on some level. Um, uh, his costume is not solidified. That won't happen more in the next season. Um, he does have one of his iconic companions, Sarah Jane Smith, which we talked about uh, last episode. Um, and we see her here. Oh. But even then, she's not quite in her iconic form here. Are you saying that Harry Sullivan is not an iconic companion? I Okay. I think he should be, um, but it, it, we talked about this, we, we alluded to this before that I, I have feelings about about Harry Sullivan. Um, I have to now admit that some of that is due to the actor because Ian Martyr, who played Harry Sullivan, uh, actually has been a huge part of Doctor Who, but a lot of it was outside of his role as Harry Sullivan. Um, he actually did a lot wrote a lot of novelizations after he retired. Um, he collaborated with Tom Baker on uh, several projects uh, back then. So he's a very good friend of Tom Baker's and actually um, for all accounts uh, was, was always happy to go to conventions, do signings. Um, he was very magnanimous and, and very much believed in Doctor Who as a show. Um, but also you see, uh, and I think we'll probably talk about it more maybe in the episode, but um, Harry's trying to play in the Jamie mold of the, kind of silly male companion and just overshoots a bit too much right well do you know one of the reasons why they cast harry's well created the character of harry, harry sullivan i think you said last time that was because they originally planned to get an older doctor before they settled on baker is that right yeah they wanted to get someone older more sort of in that william hartnell sort of style of a character instead because john pertwee became so iconic with the role they wanted a, a drastic shift Kind of how they're going to go in a drastic direction after Baker, right? Yeah, uh, and it's it's again we we're in kind of a weird moment because um it, it we 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 really tried to emphasize during our two Pertwee episodes that Pertwee was the Doctor for a large generation of people. He played the role for five years, at times unheard of, and then Baker comes along and immediately does it for seven years, and also becomes even more iconic. So like Pertwee was iconic during his run, but then almost immediately gets overshadowed by his successor in a way that doesn't really happen again until um, the ninth doctor turns into David Tennant. Um, so, I mean, it, it's, you know, where someone really establishes the role and then the next person immediately just brings it to another level. Um, so it's, and the first season's also got, remnants and bits and pieces of Pertwee era uh, writing and structure and organization. Um, so this isn't quite Tom Baker as he is commonly remembered. So again, it's weird. Like this, this is when you're watching, if you're watching this in isolation, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic story. Um, but you're watching it as a run of, of shows like this first season has the also iconic arc in space. Mm-hmm. But also right before it has Robot, which is a Pertwee story in everything except for the lead actor. And then after that has but Robot. The, the though, it does, I know that it's Baker's real first episode's Robot. And it's a great episode for like a newly regenerated doctor. It's not a good episode, but it's a good episode for a newly regenerated doctor. But it has who Baker is essentially when he and Harry interact. 
I think like the lines are most, uh, Harry's no, I'm your doctor. I, I'm a doctor. And, and Baker instantly bounces back with like a banter is like, you may be a doctor, but I am like the doctor, the definitive article and starts doing Baker stuff. And it's like, even right then you see the drastic change of characters between Pertwee and Baker. And that yeah, yeah. No. essence of Baker goes throughout the entire seven year run. Right. Um, to its detriment, which I think we'll talk about more when we get to the second episode, we talk more about the back half of Baker's run, but the first few years... Yeah, he's kind of controlling the show. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, it, it actually gets pretty bad at, near the end uh, for, for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, but, uh, I mean, again, like, all signs point towards this was just going to be, okay, it's the Doctor's first run. We haven't had dogs for a while. Let's have a dog story in here to kind of establish him as the doctor and we haven't done we haven't gone back to the daleks one we just talked about in at this point in time you know 15 years no not close 15 years um so let's kind of go back and do a before the doctor first meets the daleks prequel story and also kind of lightly recap uh what happened there except for all the details are completely wrong um it it, it completely invalidates the original Daleks story. And also, although Terry Nation's name is on the title card, was actually mostly written by the script editor because the draft was so dire. <laughs> well, I also think part of it was the original script that came in was too much like the other Dalek stories. And there was pushback and saying, we don't only we'll do is if we take a new spin towards it. And that became when the impetus sort of became like the origin of the, of the Daleks. Right. Do, do we want to talk about it? You know we're going to have to. We talk cannot not talk about it. A certain children in need special if we're in this episode. All right. All right. So um, we have to discuss it. So, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, this leads to a rant I'm going to have. Um, so I mentioned that this is kind of, again, the iconic story in the very literal sense. Um, there are lots of nods and homages to Genesis the Daleks. Uh, Russell T. Davies and actually subsequent story. No, no one's invalidated this. Uh, but Russell T. Davies has said explicitly that Genesis Daleks is the start of the Time War that you see in the modern series. Um, it is the first attempt by the Time Lords to go back and rewrite the Daleks, and that kicks off was ultimately the Dalek Time Lord Time War. Uh, and so this is ground zero for a lot of what Doctor Who looks like going forward. Uh, and particularly is the introduction of Davros, who becomes irreducible from Daleks from this point forward. Davros, with a, with a, with with one minor ex, well, with one minor chunk of years, um, but generally speaking, Dalek, Davros is in every Dalek story from this point to the end of the classic run, um, and then Dalek Davros gets reintroduced into the new Doctor Who at a certain point. Um, but also, Davros is quite literally uh, an evil evil cripple in a chair. And I use the C word very specifically here uh, because uh, it's an unfortunate trope of disabled people being presented as evil. Uh, and it's something that uh, I have, have uh, issues with. Um, but the, this has been, I, I actually was going to kind of gloss over this initially. When we first uh, pitched this, I did my notes and I was like, you know, I'm just going to kind of mention, yeah, Deborah's is in a wheelchair. It's frustrating. It was the 70s and move on. Um, Children in Need uh, did a series, uh, a, a skit recently. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Children in Need is a yearly BBC uh, 
marathon effectively. Uh, it's in American terms, it's kind of like a telethon where basically they do a whole bunch of um, skits and uh, comedy bits and movies and celebrities for a period of time on television, try to raise money for a charity. Um, children in need is a charity to help children in need. Um, it's become huge in the past 20 years. Uh, it, it's a huge event. Like this year, they raised over 33 million pounds. So, I mean, this is a big deal. Nice. And Rusty Davies, and the first time he ran Doctor Who, uh, every year would do a small Doctor something for each children need special. Now, um, initially, these were kind of explicitly non-canonical. Here's the fun little things. Uh, Rusty Davies, being the cheeky man that he is, um, has since gone back and said that everything is canon, uh, which is glorious. But um, the most common one I think that people think of these days uh, is Time Crash, where uh, the 10th Doctor meets the 5th Doctor, um, his future father-in-law, which is just hilarious, and I love that on an out of is it I'm Is it sad level. that the one that I think of whenever I think of Children in Need Special is actually going to be the one with Rowan Atkinson and Joanna Lumley? Like, that is the one I, just, I always think of, because it introduced the first female Doctor. That is the only one I think that is explicitly non-canonical. Um, there's no, an argument. No, no, no. you said they all are. So, therefore... Russell T. Davies said they all are. Russell T. Davies is sometimes a liar. I know this is a shock. <laughs> um... Uh, but anyway, so um, one of the things he wanted to do when he took over the show again is that he wanted to bring back some of the staples of his original run. So he has things like uh, a behind-the-scenes show uh, again, and the things he wants to have yearly children need episodes. So this year he did Genesis of Daleks, where the Tenth Doctor accidentally crashes into Genesis of Daleks before the events of the episode actually start. So it's actually a prequel to the show we're going to talk about now, um, and it's silly. It 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 primarily hinges around uh, a, a minor technician trying to think of a new work because Dalek is an anagram of Khaled, which we talked about uh, back in the first Doctor, and it's him coming up with that thing. It's like Adlek, um, Clyde, you know, um, and not getting it right, and a Doctor actually says Dalek, and he starts writing it down. It's, it's, it's a gag. Um, and initially, again, was going to talk about, it's like, oh yeah, here's the thing. And don't forget, b before you get the problem, I want to point out the one more funny bit is that you have the character of Davros, before you go into it, discussing the multi-purpose tool oh, yeah. that <laughs> claw. the dialect has, <laughs> that's like a claw and has all these other great bits, until the 10th Doctor, well, sorry, the 14th Doctor destroys it. Yes, um, he, he, he <clears throat> accidentally rips off the claw with landing a TARDIS and replaces it with a toilet plunger. Um, and Davros goes, that's a great idea. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, Dal uh, Davros is walking in Children in Need. And uh, initially, a lot of people thought, okay, well, it's a prequel. Maybe it's before he had his accident. We don't know how much before it is. Um, but the problem is that it, it, pretty quickly people realized in the Children in Need episode, and again, we're going deep into details of the thing we're talking about. It's referenced as a Mark III travel machine, which means it is right before the event, like like a mm -hmm. day or two before the events of it. Um, uh, so again, uh, Russell Davies had a, a, a behind-the-scenes show, uh, so he, it's like a five-minute episode to kind of show what the structure is going to look like for the show going forward. Um, and in that, he explicitly says uh, that um, it's now 2023 and showing disability as evil, something that has become increasingly uncomfortable to me and my writing team. And so time war, blah, 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 blah. This is Davros going forward. 
They got the same actor who played Davros before. He's playing it now without prosthetics, uh, without the wheelchair. He is an able-bodied man, and that's how he's going to be presented going forward for us to Davies. And the internet lost their shit. Doctor Who fandom lost their shit. Um, uh, I have been keeping track of this mostly through the Gallifrey uh, subreddit. Um, it has gotten heated. Uh, there are a lot of people like this is I, the iconic look of Davros, and you're ruining that, which sent me into furious rage because it's like, oh, so only if he's disabled is he allowed to be evil. Um, that that gives me serious fucking problems. Uh, uh, some disabled folks have weighed in, and, and uh, the only kind of nuanced take that I somewhat appreciate is that uh, uh, there should be room for disabled evil people as well as disabled good people and the like. Uh, and I'm like, while that is valid, Doctor Who does not do that. There has been exactly one positive disabled person represented Doctor Who that was during a 12th Doctor episode where a deaf character was presented as evil and she still died in the course of that episode. So if there was a litany of uh, disabled folks who were presented in a positive light, I would have more sympathy for this view. I don't. See all of our previous references about how black people have been portrayed in Doctor Who as well, right? Um, so this is an argument that it, it has been transposed from something that uh, uh, Chris and I have been, well, mostly Chris has been complaining about up to now, now I've been moved over into my side of the fence, and I'm also equally frustrated by it. <laughs> I would not use the word complain. I would use the word, mm, the words, I'm highlighting a very distinctive viewpoint. Um, in, in letting people know these things they may have overlooked or may not be aware of. Fair in enough. In short. Tell them to go fuck themselves if they don't see the obvious. You are educating people and helps that they will enlighten and broaden their viewpoints. Yes. Um, but I mean, frankly, if you can't complain in your own podcast, what's the point of having a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I, 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 I am frustrated by this. Um, and so this has become a, a bigger – I'm glad we're talking about it now because I want to get it out of the way because, frankly, the rest of Genesis Dallas has a lot of good to talk about. Um, and – Genesis Daleks is not specifically the reason why Davros is the way he is. Davros continuing to be the way he is is the reason why he's the way he is. Um, but also, it, it, I bring it up because it is a larger problem that Doctor Who, and frankly, science fiction has had for a long time, um, which is – and we I've been quiet about it, but basically just like we've been talking about with people of color and how they're presented, disabled people are, are exactly the same boat. And to RTD's credit – he is working hard to try to correct that balance. Um, he has mentioned that there will be some people going forward that could have more of them on the screen, so that's good. Um, he's also explicitly said that, um, hey, trans people are going to be in Doctor Who. If you don't like it, then that's your problem and not mine. Um, so, I mean, RTD is doing what he can to kind of correct that balance, but he's got 60 years to work against. It's going it's to be a while before that gets going in, the, in a positive direction. Mm -hmm. So... This is something I dropped in the Discord. It is tangentially related at best to this. But since you mentioned that he he's working towards changing all this, I voiced a concern for the idea and concept of the universe mm -hmm. is that they're going to create all these amazing diverse shows and like in the doctor and everything else. But then they're going to create a different version that lacks that to sort of hedge their bets is my concern of something they're going to try to pull off. For instance, there's talks of having Paul McGann come back and be the doctor. And then you'll have a 15th doctor and an eighth doctor show. 
Right. And that uh, is disconcerting from what I'm envisioning. And I'm basing this not on Russell T, not on Russell D. Davis, but on what I've seen in the past up till now. So I want to sure, preface right. that specifically in saying that I have concerns. I'm not saying that it's something that will or will not happen, but that is a concern I have. Right. And um, literally, if there's any other showrunner, I would be more like, yeah, let's kind of see how this plays out. I, I have a little more faith in RTD because uh, um, at some point we should, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about Russell Davis era, but um, he really pushed it forward in a lot of ways, um, which in retrospect, you know, 2005 was a very different era and some things have not aged well on that front. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's not perfect by any stretch of imagination, but certainly it's a lot better than it was in the 80s and 90s. Um, and everything I've been seeing and hearing, uh, at least on this side of the pond, is that he's very much committed to trying to do better uh, in, in 2023. Um, but, like, yes, there's talk about uh, Paul McGann having maybe an eighth Doctor show. I would be surprised if it's anything more than a miniseries, frankly. Because if nothing else, Paul McGann is in his 60s and really does not like filming outside of his home. So it's probably going to be let's hire Paul McGann for a couple of months, pay him a lot of money, and then let him go back to doing Big Finish for the rest of his life. I, I, I don't think it's going to be like a main series. Um, I, I use the Eighth Doctor specifically because that was mentioned, but it could be sure, 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 right. right. cis white male doctor. Right. Um, I will say also that um, a lot of the other doctors have been extremely supportive of the 15th Doctor casting. Um, Peter Davidson had a, a, a bit of a, a stumble on 14th Doctor, um, uh, which he since walked back. Uh, but I just uh, checked. Do you mean here. 13th Doctor? You mean Jodie Whittaker, right? Because Jody, wait, sorry, he voiced doctor, him. Because I don't think he'd have a problem with David Tennant. If he did, no, 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 he, no, he probably I, wouldn't I, voice I, it. It'd be like over over dinner on the holidays. Right. right. What are you doing, David, man? your recent portrayal left me that way. No, you're right. Talk about 13th Doctor. I, I, the numbering is going to be off for, for a while for me. Um, uh, uh, but yeah, uh, he just me make a comment about um, he's it's he, he's a little frustrated because uh, the Doctor is a, a role model for for young boys and a lot of people are like yeah, but there's lots of those and he ultimately did walk that back. Um, but uh, I just the radio. I would times. like to point out that there's no reason that a woman can't be a role model for young children of any gender. Uh, right. I mean, I, th th that's a whole separate issue. We're going to. Uh, but again, I checked the Radio Times recently, and um, uh, Tom Baker, who I want to clarify, is 90, right? Um, so his terminology is not perfect, uh, but Tom Baker said, um, uh, that's that, that's a very handsome man. Uh, he has great cheekbones, and I think he'll do well as a doctor. Um, <laughs> Tom Baker re doesn't realize that they use they them pronouns. We're not going to convince a 90-year-old man <laughs> to look into that. But the instinct, the, the intent is there, right? Tom Baker is like, no, I, I think the 15th Doctor is fantastic, and it's going to do wonders. Um, and Tom Baker is not shy with his opinions. Let's put it that no. way. So, uh, uh, no, but he also thought Jodie was great. Um, but also most of it was comp compliments on her appearance too. But again, he did the same thing for the 15th doctor. So <laughs> I, I think, for, think for Jodie though, like the one I remember hearing the most about who was almost immediately in her corner and vocal from the classic doctors was a uh, Colin Baker. If I remember yes. right. Oh yeah, no, Colin. Colin came out like oh, swigging for like Jody. Like, you better back the fuck up. <laughs> Spoilers for what we're going to talk about in a few months here. Um, we're going to be probably pretty harsh on Colin Baker's run, but Colin Baker as a person is fucking amazing, right? And um, so are his big finish adventures. 
Yes, yes, 100%. Um, but he was not only supportive of Jodie Whittaker, uh, but also fought other people about it, right? He was like, I've been saying Doctor should be a woman since the day one. And he has. He legitimately said, why can't Doctor be a woman back when he was hired? Um, and so he's like, now it's finally happened. He's like, and he said things like, it's a shame it's taken this long, but I'm glad to see she's here. Um, he is one of the few classic doctors who's been correctly using pronouns uh, as best as he can. Again, they're older. They're trying to figure things out. Um, uh, but he, he makes an effort anyway, and he is uh, – uh, Col Colin Baker, frankly, is just a gem of a human being from everything I've heard, and I'm glad that he is still around. All right, so as we're running long, and I know that <laughs> there's going to be more stuff that we need to touch on even right, before right, we get right. into the episode proper. I don't want to cut you short, but is there anything else you'd like to discuss about the Children in Need special? I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, yes. No, thank you for, for 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 once you're being the person keeping you on task. Um, no, I, I think I've covered that. Uh, the main – I just want to make sure going into the recognize is that uh, Davros is a problematic stereotype. Um, so when I'm – I'm going to try to focus my commentary on Davros as a character because Davros as a character is actually, frankly, pretty interesting. Okay. Um, so we've been talking about the greatness that uh, RTD is trying to do. Mm -hmm. I want to take a hard pivot and go in the absolute other direction. So, Eddie, who's John Nathan Turner? We're not there yet, so I don't want to talk about him. Come yet. on. <laughs> come on. I think we need to do it up top. Honestly, we, we I, don't I, have to if you don't want to. I mean, I'd rather talk about it when we get to the fifth doctor because that's going to make it be more relevant. Um, uh, but basically, uh, the short version for context is we that, can wait. Um, we can wait. We don't. So we don't. Uh, uh, JNT is basically evil RTD. Let's put it that way. See, he's even got the mustache. So, so all right, we won't do that one yet. <laughs> I was. Oh, we will. I, I, I've been holding that. I've been waiting. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying it's like we will when we get there. But I have lots of opinions about JNT. So we've talked a lot about who Hartnell was, who Troughton was, who Pertwee was. Who the fuck is Tom Baker? You know, he's coming in after the iconic veteran doctors. Who is this young whippersnapper? What makes him think that he could be the doctor? Uh, hilariously, um, he was working on a construction site when he got hired. Um, his, he, he, for all, all, from his own biography, uh, my understanding is that he was basically working some plays. He'd done some minor roles on TV. He's primarily known um, as playing a villain in an Aladdin film, um, which was yes, yeah. brown face. Yeah. So, you know, it is what it is. But his performance was certainly striking in that movie. You've <laughs> seen it. Um, uh, and uh, so his agent said, you should try for this Doctor Who role. He's like, I'll never get it, but I'll go ahead and apply for it. Um, and the main reason he got it is because Tom Baker plays Tom Baker. Like, I love Tom Baker. He is not a good actor. He's good at being Tom Baker. <laughs> do, do you, before we get it, do, do Tom Baker being Tom Baker, do you want to touch on, I think he was in like, was it a monastery he was a member of? He was, or some sort of religious school that he had done until he sort of lost faith in that. I, I may know a little bit about Tom Baker's like early life before he sort of yeah, lost faith it. in that. And then I think for, I, I have been curious about the doctor's military service since all this is so close to world war two. I kind of, that's mm -hmm. one of the things to target in on. And the other three doctors were actually veterans who fought in the war, but about Tom Baker's there, he had to do his own, I want to say like two or three years of military service and he'd worked at a hospital. 
of some sort. And it was a doctor there where he sort of like bumped into acting and that sort of transitioned along the way to get him to be in that spot. Like that's the quickest synopsis I can throw together. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, actually, I just double checked. Um, he also briefly served in the merchant Navy as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, he actually started as an actor relatively late in life. Um, he was in his late 30s, early 40s when he got this role. Um, so to be honest, the fact he's still alive is not only surprising to us, but a bit surprising to Tom too. Um, if you've ever <laughs> read his interviews, he will inevitably make some kind of joke about dying soon. He's, he's just a very black comedic person and he and, and he's recognizing that i shouldn't really be here anymore um uh but um so so i mean he's yeah that that, that that's good that's a good kind of quick potted history um uh, i'm just checking here um he uh like i said he was in the golden voyage of sinbad in 73 um he was also in uh the vault of horror in 73 um those are kind of really his only on-screen roles before Doctor Who. Uh, most of it for, for those for stage roles. So it's just Tom Baker is just deeply weird as a person. And that's really what got him the role is because he's deeply, deeply strange. And this is probably could have been something we talked about next episode, but it's, I think, the... I won't say lack of, but the fewer roles that he had, unlike the other actors, could have been one of the reasons why he wanted to stay in the role so long as a doctor. Because the rest of them had longer careers and everything else they were that they had done and then went on to do other things. While Baker, after his run, I don't think had the same amount of success, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I mean, to be fair, he had very little success before then. Um, and his uh I mean, he did like uh lots of bit parts, like, but his bit parts were kind of because you want to recognize the guy that played Doctor Who. So it's like he was in Blackadder, or he was in the D&D movie, as you'd like to remind me. Um, he was in Cluedo. Uh, he played Professor Plum in a series of Cluedo, which was a British game show based on Clue. Um, his, actually, his big role after Doctor Who, quote unquote, was um, he played a character in Monarch of the Glen, which is a long-running soap opera for about a year. Um, do, you, do you know that I, I watched Monarch of the, of the Glen when it came out? I was, I was really I was a fan of it. I, I had to find ways to watch it in the States before it became available. I've never actually watched it. I've heard it's actually pretty good. Is it also and if um, I'm not mistaken, wasn't Tom Baker also I think we talk, talked about this in the Discord, Sherlock Holmes? He was in uh a, a adaptation of Hound of Baskervilles, which <laughs> I'm a Sherlock Holmes fan. I'm a Tom Baker fan. It is not a good adaptation of Hounds of Baskervilles. He is not a good Sherlock Holmes. I'm, I'm going to be honest. Oh, we may have to grudge cover novelty. that sometime. We'll have to I grudge mean, I, cover that. I, I agree. I mean, I would gladly watch it and joyously make fun of it. Um, because it, I, would, I will enjoy watching it to make fun of it. But, I mean, in terms of actually, oh, is a good hound basketball? But no, it's, it's the doctor playing <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. Uh, <sighs> Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, since the, I mean, uh, he also did some voiceover work in Little Britain, which is other kind of big post two thing. Uh, because again, his voice is iconic, and that's the other big piece of, of the Fourth Doctor is his voice is just exquisite, um, and he uses it to really good effect. Um, and, and it's interesting is like all of the Doctors have had some kind of distinctive speaking patterns. 
up to this point. It's something I hadn't thought about until I just mentioned it, but like uh, all of them have a very distinct way of speaking that if you hear it, you can almost instantly recognize it. Oh, this is this doctor. Um, it's, it's sadly around the fifth doctor where that starts to change. Um, and it, it goes, it comes and goes after that. But up to this point, each one of them has a very distinctive voice. Um, and then Tom Baker, certainly his voice was so distinctive actually that um, uh, he, about five or six years ago, um, uh, th there was a, a service in the BBC, in uh, British telecom where you could text people who didn't have uh, cell phones um, and it would go to a landline phone and would read the text and they used Tom Baker's <laughs> voice for that, which means you could, for a while, make Tom Baker say some really, really amazing shit. I love it. So I was watching an interview on YouTube, as, as I do, and uh, about Tom Baker, and he is a fascinating individual, yes. one of which I will I'll leave my entire Tom Baker speech on here, and then we could go to the episode proper if you want, because I could then start <laughs> going to minutia, is that... One of the reviews he got from someone watching the show is that a woman came up to him and he to hear Tom Baker say this, that you made my titties tingle as a quote that he put in an interview and said he thought about having it put on his tombstone to go back to Tom Baker always talking about death. Right there for you, my friend. Uh, Tom Baker is such a strange man. <laughs> I cannot emphasize this enough. Like we, we the, he, his doctor is so iconic, and it's just because it, it, it's it's just Tom Baker, but for children. And he admits he's very that, much not for children. And he admits that he was not playing a character; he was just being himself. Yeah, he, he often says he's not an actor; he's a performer. Um, and I think that is a honestly a fairly accurate self analysis uh, of him. I mean, again, he's like he 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 plays Tom Baker. Uh, but he's really, really, really good at playing Tom Baker. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, okay, so um, easing the depths up proper, uh, as I mentioned, this is uh, season one. One more. This is something that I am not overly prepared for myself, but you may have a little bit more knowledge. We mentioned the incredible Liz Slayton at the top. I feel that if you know anything about Liz, do you want to give like a little bit of information oh. about her? I was actually going to. Um, uh, okay. Thank you for anticipating me um, because I was say this is season one. Um, we're kind of in a weird uh, uh, semi-serial structure. So uh, it, there are stuff happening before and after this that lead into other stories. It, it doesn't really detract from it, but um, basically uh, um, like we talked about before in Robot, which is his very first episode, um, he inherits Sarah Jane Smith um, and acquires Harry Sullivan. Um, and I've already talked about uh, Ian Martyr. Uh, Ian Martyr uh, was primarily a comedian, um, which I think helps understand Harry a bit more, is that he's trying to do the big Brigadier-style role of playing the straight man to the Doctor's strangeness. Um, but I think the problem is that Tom Baker is so out there that you can't adequately balance him. And I think that's that's a lot of what Ian's... Uh, and what Harry Sullivan struggles with is that there's only so much straight man you can provide, you know? <laughs> um, uh, so he starts to slide into uh, also being funny and having two funny people on the screen is just too much. Um, 
Sarah Jane Smith, on the other hand, knows how to play against Tom Baker and is amazing. Elizabeth Sladen, um, there's a reason why she is one of the iconic uh, companions, um, because not only did she – she has technically met five doctors, uh, depending on how you count them. It'd be um, more I mean, than that, right? Te technically, she's met seven, uh, but she has had speaking lines with five of them. Uh, um Oh, gee, maybe six. No, regardless, a lot of them. Um, yeah, but she was in the five doctors. Well, technically, four point one doctor, but well, right, and then, that, that's that's why then I'm, she I'm, met I'm, doctors later, right? Because she, she she spoke to the second doctor. She hung out with the third doctor and the five doctors. She spent time with the fourth doctor. She met the tenth she, and eleventh doctors, and she would have talked to the first doctor, the actor portraying the first doctor in the five doctor special. Spoke, I don't think they spoke to each other in the, the they were doctors. in the same scene. Cause they all were together uh, before they went to their different TARDISes. Hence my, depending on how you count it. <laughs> <laughs> but this is minutia and you know, my love of minutia. <laughs> We've established that episode one of this podcast. That's, that's, that's the whole reason we're here. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, Elizabeth, uh, she is, a news journalist um she is at this point in her life uh is a, a advent uh feminist um, and we talked a little bit about uh first versus second versus third wave feminism she's she's uh, in the first wave we won't rehash that um but more importantly uh joe we talked joe grant joe grant just no sold the doctor she just, everything was plucky and she just everything she just kind of handled it all with a smile uh Sarah Jane is different in the fact that she is really good at being um, a strong-willed woman while also letting things genuinely scare her. And the way she presents herself is not just by, I'm going to scream and fall over scared. She brings a depth to her acting where she looks genuinely terrified. Uh, but also she is powering through it. She's not letting that fear consume her. Uh, and so Sarah Jane Smith is, I think, our first real this is a human being companion we've probably had. Uh, maybe, I mean, you can make an argument for Ian and Barbara being very, very close. Uh, but um, one of the things that I've always loved about Sarah Jane is that she does not put up with the doctor's shit, uh, but she's also not indestructible. Uh, there is a great scene, we're not going to cover it, but uh, in uh, uh, Ark in Space, uh, where she's crawling through a tunnel, um, and it's claustrophobic, and she just kind of gives up. Uh, she's I can't do it. Um, and so the doctor just abuses her, right? And it's like, it's, it's Tom Baker, and he's like, you know, I, I knew you couldn't do it, you silly girl, and whatnot. And so she gets pissed at him, and he basically drags her out. <laughs> And this is a great moment between them where like, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, and she's hitting him. She's punching him. She knows why he did it. It doesn't change the fact that it hurt her and she's mad and scared. And you see all of that in her acting. And that's what's so fantastic about Liz Layden is that she can carry multiple emotions simultaneously while also keeping pace with Tom Baker and all of – and frankly, John Pertwee in a very different way. Um, they're all they're both very bombastic actors and very different styles of bombast and she can keep pace with both of them equally well and also carve out space for herself as a character and just all of that is a fantastic accomplishment. she really does uh 
push the companion role forward in a lot of ways. And I do want to take a beat to point out that when she showed up for John Pertwee, she showed up the latter half of John Pertwee's run where he was mm-hmm. like the doctor, where he didn't have concerns about how he was doing the role. He was the role. And mm-hmm. she ran parallel with him for that entire tenure. Like that is exceptional. Right. Um, and uh, honestly, uh, Tom has flat out said that uh, uh, Elizabeth helped him ease into the role because she was the old hand by that point. She, she was the established character. She'd been doing it for a year. Um, and so she helped him figure things out. Um, and he has always uh, been very uh, complimentary of her. And in fact, he was one of the actors who probably was the most clearly shooken up by her death. Um, he actually wouldn't talk about her for a long time. His wife had to post something on his website about her because he couldn't get himself to do it. That's how broken up he was. They were very, very, very close as people. Um, and you can see that on the screen, right? Like their chemistry. It really, again, this is a bad show episode for that because you don't see a lot of Sarah and Doctor on the screen except for one scene, which is one of the most memorable scenes where you absolutely see that dynamic. Um, and it's interesting that I think you can watch this and see that dynamic even in the small space it has in this story and still get it very quickly. But bizarrely, Harry and the Doctor spend more time together in this serial than Sarah and the Doctor do. Uh, but anyway, uh, so like I said, there, there, there's the ongoing storyline. All you really need to know going into it is that um, uh, the Doctor uh, was in the Arkham space, um, got uh, accidentally uh, found a teleport pad to try to get to the TARDIS, this story is stuck in the middle of that story, um, and then we after this story, you have another story where he eventually gets back to the TARDIS. So like, there's like a, a run of two and a half stories where he's actually nowhere near the TARDIS, and we're in the middle, chock in the middle of that. So it's iconic story where the TARDIS actually never appears. Can I tell you how much I love that conceit, though? Like that mm-hmm. is the best because that doesn't mean the TARDIS malfunctions, so you can't use it for anything. It is an object they have an objective to get to but it's stuff going on where you are definitely stuck in a definitive place that you have to resolve the issue without the safety of the TARDIS right yeah um, and it re- I really think it adds to the, the feeling of horror and danger to this uh, serial um, uh, one last thing before we go into it proper uh, is that um, uh, a lot of the first few seasons of Tom Baker's run uh, the production team homaged classic films a lot. Oma, I'm using the nice word homage. You could argue uh, uh, rip off for a few of the stories. Um, uh, but it starts kind of around here uh, because um, there's actually an homage to uh, Ingmar Bergman's film, The Seventh Seal, and how the Time Lord is presented. Yeah. Uh, who's if you had mentioned that, mentioned, I would have. Yeah. Um, and it's supposed to represent death from that movie, which is really deeply interesting in retrospect because <laughs> this is the start of the time war. <laughs> and something else that we probably won't get to touch on based on the other episode we've chosen is a lot of the middle of Baker's run after this is heavily influenced by the horror genre. Mm-hmm. And we're unfortunately not covering any of those episodes. Yeah, we're like going to skip. That's impetus for me to want to come back to Baker just to cover some of those. But uh, frankly, we could do I think we could do an entire season one from each one episode of our show for each season of Dr. Baker's run um, because it, it, it's one of the mo- moments of Dr. Who where Dr. Who changes the most under one lead actor mm-hmm. uh, season one of uh, season 12, but this is one of Baker's run and season seven of Baker's run are dramatically different shows. 
Yes. Uh, uh, and the fourth doctor is dramatically different. There are actually distinct eras inside of this that you can carve out. And you, it, it's three or four, depending on how you count them, um, eras of just the fourth doctor and how he how he is as a character. It's actually kind of an arc even of the fourth doctor. Through It's unintentional. It's completely unintentional, but you can find an arc, a character arc through it. Um, but again, like, this is the, the the start of the kind of it's a darker more horrific thing um so yeah so i guess let's just, unless you have anything else let's kind of go into it what we're almost an hour now before you've talked about the episode i think <laughs> I we spent another 15 20 minutes just talking about random baker and sarah jade bits till we hit the hour marker then we just totally go to the episode we decided that's it folks are out Right, it's 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 just no, just go watch it. No, it's okay. so good. Let's, just go watch it. Cold. Which I mean, you should, but let's let's talk about it. Uh, so as usual, we're gonna kind of break this into rough chunks. Um, the fourth Doctor and his companions, Sarah Jane Smith and Harry Sullivan, are intercepted by the Time Lords because they're big dicks. Um, the Doctor, <laughs> in isolation from his companions, are, is directed to interfere with the creation of the Daleks so as to avert a future in which the Daleks rule the universe. He is given a time ring to return them to his TARDIS when the mission is complete. The three find themselves on the Dalek planet of Scarrow. A generation's long war between the Thals and the Khalids have left the planet inhospitable, and the two sides have congregated in their own domes for protection in order to continue the war. A chemical weapon attack forces the companions to take shelter. Let's kind of stop there because there's a lot to kind of – actually, a lot happens in that short – we're actually not even through first episode yet, but a lot happens in that. Um, who the fuck uses a time ring that is the worst concept ever i i talked about i like them separated apart i hate the concept of a time ring anything that could be like taken away from you so you can't do something else like that i say nay it is a MacGuffin. well that's exactly it right like it's it, the, the whole point of this is there's a, it's a reason for them to get stuck here for several episodes um uh but so this is because like this is only the third time we have seen the time boards on screen at this point, not kind of the doctor. Um, so we haven't quite gotten to their full collar and robe oh, iconography yet. Love that collar. Uh, uh, although we're getting closer because again, like the, 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 the look of the death from seventh seal is it's still got a huge thing. And I feel like that kind of maybe informs uh, later things. Weirdly, a lot of what we know about the time Lords does actually get solidified in the fourth doctor's, run um this is not one of them uh but um it's an interesting moment uh, uh this first season it really is kind of the whole thing's kind of a transition away from pertwee uh because we're still seeing remnants of the doctor being frustrated at the time lords interfering uh, but there's a great very baker moment uh, that kind of helps you to kind of learn the character very quickly was where uh um, the time words like, and we've, we've pulled you from your time stream, blah, blah, blah. And doctors, I'm tired of this constant interference. Like, there's nothing you could say that would convince me. It's like the Daleks say, Daleks, tell me more. Just immediately pivots. <laughs> <laughs> that is so perfect. Oh. <laughs> then a, a large, larger, I guess, more meta, meta question is so we have the time interventions. Would this be a celestial intervention agency agent? That has been retconned to be true. Um, okay, so getting rabbit hole. Um, Pulled it out. 
the Selection and Intervention Agency, yes, it spells CIA. Yes, that's the joke. Uh, <laughs> actually comes from The Deadly Assassin, um, which is a later series. Uh, and um, the CIA are basically Time War Black Ops. Uh, they're the people that interfere with time, even though the Time Wars can't do it. They are your Section 31. They're whatever. Um, they're the, the bad people who do the spy things that the ostensible utopia can't do. Uh, this has been further solidified through audio dramas Muddled. because in the Gallifrey series, um, a, a, one of the CIA agents explicitly sit, is given the order to talk to the doctor to pull him out of his time stream to try to subvert <laughs> the Daleks being created. So this has been pretty much as close as Doctor Who can have firm canon. This is pretty firm canon now that this character is a CIA agent. Yeah. All right. Um, which, by the way, the Gallifrey is fantastic. You should just do it. Uh, anyway, um, uh, so uh, he recollects um, Harry and Sarah, and uh, you see, we learn pretty quickly. If you're familiar with Doctor Who, this is basically a prequel to Daleks. Um, so we're before uh, in the, the Daleks serial. Um, which I realize now that I say that it's gonna be confusing, so I'll try to keep that clear. Um, uh, this is the Dalek serial set after the war. Um, this is right before that, uh, ostensibly. Um, and there's a cool moment of like them talking about how the technology has de-evolved during the course of this really long war, um, where it's like they started off with very intricate things, and now they're fighting with basically World War II trenches and world war one trenches with world war two weapons uh and it's a cool idea in a moment and it's it's a very quick way to show you how just horrible this war is and why we're going to have this weird mishmash technology going forward it's also because we kind of gets glazed over somewhat but the graphic opening scene of a soldier being shot down yeah in all of that is like horrifying to watch and i think i read somewhere Later on, someone said they think that might have been a bit too much for kids from, from how gruesome it was. But, uh, it's a great way to display the story they're trying to tell, but it's also a great cost-cutting measure for the production team. Right. I mean, it's very clear that this is basically let's grab some shit from the BBC historical department, shove it into a trench, and say, sci-fi. Um, but it actually the, – the, the logic actually holds up in it, and it's one of the things that I think that makes this – show great is that we have talked on many shows about how constraints can often uh, add to creativity and this is the perfect example mm -hmm. of it is that there's a lot of constraints on this episode or this serial and the story comes out of it as a result is fantastic and touching back on one more thing the cia agent's choice to not bring harry and sarah into the conversation with the doctor also gives you a reflection of how potentially the time lords view humans because they weren't worthy enough to be considered even in this conversational topic. Like the only person that we're going to tell you about it is a doctor. And if he wants to, he can tell them and everything else. Right. Uh, and to be fair, that actually uh, uh, tracks. Um, to go back to the source we didn't cover, um, in the uh, war games, his two companions are literally just like, yeah, we're going to brainwipe them. It's in the back of time streams. That's like all they're mentioned yep. by. Everything else about the doctor. Um, and then in the three doctors, um, his his companions are kind of like, 
the, we're, we're cutting between what the three doctors doing and um the time lords the companions are all referenced kind of like you know the, and there's humans that he's with um they 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 clearly time lords don't seem to they're above humanity they're they're not dismissive in a cruel way they're dismissive in a oh i didn't see you there kind of way at this point until we hit ravelox with the sixth doctor that's a that's a deep oh, it, cut it, it goes worse. other people if they want to lick it up for before we potentially get there yeah we're gonna move earth because it's, in, it's inconvenient <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh yeah no it gets worse don't worry um but uh at this point in time yeah it, it's very much the time lords you start to see why the doctor has left the time lords we I mean, don't see much of of his home world is that they clearly just are are it's such, such a high level they, they they miss the cost of it and that's a lot of what the story is about right like the, the what is the cost of this higher scale thing um mm-hmm. we'll get to that there's a scene we're, we're all gonna get to we're gonna talk about it but uh it's setting up for this kind of ethical debate uh, i think that's everything for the initial part anything else about the first part no we're good other we could talk about the fight scene if you want that that I, high quality combat but no, I'm, I'm good. Look, the BBC, aside from the Avengers, the BBC is not good at fight scenes. <laughs> and the Avengers is more fun than good in terms of fight scenes. <laughs> I'd follow Emma Pill anywhere. Um, you're saying, go ahead. I was saying, Sarah is separated but meets the Mutos, mutated exiles from both sides, who try to help protect her before they're all captured by the falls and forced to load radioactive material on a missile. The Doctor and Harry are separated by the are captured with the college, their possessions complicated and are taken to a bunker to be the scientific and military elite, including the lead scientist Davros, who unveils the Mark III travel machine, or Dalek, which the doctor recognizes as his nemesis. Ronson, one of Davros's scientists, secretly tells the doctor he knows Davros's experiments are unethical, and the doctor is able to convince the college leadership to put a halt to Davros's experiments. Davros learns of Ronson's actions and covertly provides the Thal leaders a chemical formula that can weaken the college dome and make it vulnerable to their missile attack while preparing 20 more Daleks. Uh, so, um, uh, now we're moving into stuff that pretty heavily contradicts the original serial, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing it's contradicting at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, when we watched the Daleks, the Thals were uncomfortably presented as good, right? Like they're just universally good, blonde white people in a deeply unsettling way, right? It's, it's the unhappy. The Thals the here are nothing like that. They're actually just as bad as the Khalids. Um, they're, they're, they have a workforce that they're working to death uh, with without protection to try to get this bomb to to murder a whole bunch of other people. There there is no way that these stalls resemble the falls we saw before. I, I would like honestly, to, I think it's a, like to point out one it one benefit. Not say benefit. One positive for the previous interpretation of the thals in general mm-hmm. is that there were more women in that episode than there are in this episode that is more closer to modern day. We have oh, yeah. two female protagonists in this entire serial. Two. That yeah. is obnoxious. And there are zero people of color. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, 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 this is not uh, a positive representation in any way. And, and at least on the college side, 
you can kind of argue that's intentional, but it's mostly probably just accidental. Uh, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, uh, but uh, basically, the mutos are just kind of the underclass of both sides. Um, and it, it not only is it uh, kind of an uncomfortable allegory, but also they're not even really that mutated. They're just kind of in shitty clothing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm not uh, going to so, say I mean, about that. It's, it comes down to like the Thal subplot is actually kind of one of the weaker parts of this. And I think the reason why it's hard to notice it unless you're trying to analyze it is that Elizabeth Sladen is selling the hell out of this concept as much as she can. Um, and, and she does a really good job of making you overlook how thin this whole subplot is. Because, again, she does a really good job of balancing terrified and determined, which is exactly what this entire subplot needs. And part of me wants to say that this would have been a better as a Doctor and Liz episode, but at the same time, if it had just been that, we would have lost the insight we get into, even though it's thinly plotted, like this side of the war, which we need to see to sort of understand. And so I think that is a good use of Liz Sladen for the episode. But I have to agree, it, it loses a lot. It doesn't it doesn't hit how it should. Right. Um, again, like, to your point, it's like we need to see this because we as the audience understand that the the Khalids are not they're, – they're evil, but they're not mustache twirling evil, right? It's like there's no good people in this war. Uh, both sides have significant moral problems, um, uh, and that's – that's an important thing for us to see as the audience. Uh, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, this whole entire subplot boils down to watching Liz Sladen climb the same bit of scaffolding seven or eight times. It's really what happens and, here. And plummet to her death. And plummet like to her that, obvious death. There, there, there is no way that was just a random, we need a cliffhanger scene to end it on. She plummeted to her death. She she literally oh god this is cliffhanger is so great you're right um because she literally falls off scaffolding they freeze frame the next episode picks up with her catching the next layer down and continues <laughs> climbing it's so arbitrary amazing amazing oh I loved it um uh but no a lot of this is uh the doctor um and Harry uh, bouncing off the college who are obviously Nazis. There, it's not even subtle. Um, and the fact that there are people to this day who still try to argue the college are not Nazis is a level of unwillingness to see what's on the screen that I cannot find. I can't even parse. <laughs> I can't even begin to possibly comprehend how they can say that. But to <laughs> specifically for the doctor and Harry, though, it was nice to see their initial interactions, how they're dealing with the Nazis. Of course, mm-hmm. they call them Nazis to make it easier for people. Yeah, they're, they're um, Nazis. And how they almost escape by their own ingenuity. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you have people there that know the society that they're in, recognizing that they don't fit or belong at all. And so their cover story that they wouldn't know about wouldn't work. So right. very nice, subtle touches. And by uh, subtle, and, I mean sledgehammer. Oh, yeah. No, this, 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 this story is not subtle. Uh, but it is there, – there are, there are layers to it. Um, none of them are subtle layers, but there, there are, there's more than one thing happening here, which is interesting. Um, like, for example, uh, the doctor does – which will become an on-running it, – it's been homage, but this has become a specific 
Tom Baker gag of weird shit in his pockets and lots of it. Um, and so it's like, empty your pockets. And he says, this might take a while. And then proceeds <laughs> to put random shit on the table. But while he's doing that, he's looking over the map and talking to them about what's going on. And then they make a reference to, we're going to wipe uh, the, 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 the thals off the planet. And he makes another sweeping gesture and turns that into an escape attempt. Um, so again, none of those things are subtle, but there's a lot happening in this thing so even six episodes it's not just surprisingly pacey and the fact that there was such a young general sort of it reinforces mm-hmm. someone like the ongoing generational war one of the original things they were going to do that they changed their mind on is they wanted the soldiers to be in their mid-teens like 15 and 16 to show oh, you man. the war and they were like uh no <laughs> and so they made them older but that was like the initial concept man come on if it's good enough for gundam it's good enough for you yeah, that's <laughs> child oh. soldiers. Woo! Um, this is one of the one of the things that I think works so well is this. It's like up till now, what rewatching of the third Doctor stuff and everything else, the dialects had become a joke. They were they're beaten by water. They were beaten by people with sticks. Yeah. So you've you've lost the horror factor for it, but this brings back the horror element to them, and even like the smaller number, like twenty is something that is supposed to be frightening that works how in future episodes in the new who i'm sorry it's not even new who anymore because there's going to be a new new who so let's say new in who. the uh mid who they <laughs> would use fleets of dialects to come after people and they would just be destroyed with like a single energy blast that loses the horror they're supposed to have yeah this is frankly uh a, a soft reboot of the daleks and it's a good one for, for that reason, um, because we don't see a Dalek for like a solid two episodes. Um, uh, we see the Khalids and we see kind of what the Daleks come from. Uh, Ian's, I mean, yeah, yeah, there's this, it, Harry and the Doctor almost escape, um, and then there's a giant clam for a reason, and then they get captured and come back uh, again. You, like, you, this can't, is, you can't just glaze over the giant crab. Oh, I can. What, I can. What in Davros's experiments to make a travel machine would have him create a giant crab monster? That is what I want to know, Eddie Webb. How? What? Where in your experiments? Hmm. Giant <laughs> crabs. That's what we could evolve into. And we just sit there as a clam, not moving. That's what our race needs. My 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 argument for that is that Davros is hungry and really wanted oysters. <laughs> And was like, what if I had a really big oyster? That would really satisfy my craving. And just went down a rabbit hole of research because he was hungry. Uh. Um, but no, it's 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 again, it's it's Terry Nation. Uh, okay, so brief aside. Um, uh, this was co-written by uh, Robert Holmes, who was the script editor. Um, uh, and Robert Holmes and Terry Nation, to, to briefly summarize the writing styles, are very goddamn different. Um. <sighs> Robert Holmes is a cynical, cynical, hilarious man, and Terry Nation writes pulp novels. Uh, and so you have weird moments where you have this story about the deep ethical constructs of child soldiers espousing far-right ideology and trying to fight an endless war and also giant clamps because there needs to be something action happening in this moment. Really? Uh, really? Is that action? Harry, your leg. Oh, doctor. Oh, nothing's broken. 
It, it is the exact same reason why uh, we skipped over this, but uh, the Doctor stands on the landmine, and then Terry shoves Harry shoves rocks under it for five minutes, and then they step off the landmine, and we move on. That's the entire bit of that subplot. It's because Terry Nation's like, we need a bit of action here, and it's just like, I don't know, I don't think that word means what you think it means, Terry. Uh, but for that one, <laughs> I would say it's less about the action, but reinforcing like the World War vibe they're trying to get to it for landmine. That one I would Which, like go. True, the the deactivation of like putting rocks <laughs> under it is super comical so and long. if you ever step on a landmine please do not do that that will not help <laughs> you or your friend <laughs> um uh, i mean i just said earlier this is very pacey and now we're talking about how slow it is because it ultimately comes down to that there's a lot there's a bit of weird pacing through all of this because it's a six episodes and b two different writers wrote it and it was rewritten pretty heavily right before shooting i think during shooting even um, so, so it is kind of a bit odd, but the upside of it is that it's really doing a good job of showing the doctor and Harry as a decent team. Um, so, I mean, we just talked about how Harry's not a memorable companion in some ways, but, um, you start to see both why they could work together and also why ultimately Harry's going to become superfluous because Harry doesn't bring anything particularly new to the whole three person dynamic. Well, they're feel, they're almost filling too much of the same role, and so it doesn't work. How we were talking about earlier, not even from the humor aspect, but in age, in general appearance, in both of them kind of being actiony, it it doesn't work. Right, right. I mean, you could have easily rewritten this to have been just a doctor doing all this stuff, and not much would have changed. Yeah, Sarah uh, Jane, put a rock under the put a rock under the land by for me. Right. Uh, um, so uh, Davros rolls out the, the Mark III travel machine, which he would call Dalek. Um, and now we know from the Children Need special how he came up with that name. So he straight up oh. stole it from somebody. Oh, I, I hate that so much. That that is a part that is a part of that special that bothers me so much. Is that he names him, and you get into your time timey wimey loop thing, like. Would they have come with the name Daleks before he knew it? But if if they hadn't, how would he know the name Dalek? Right, right. Yep. It's it's uh, 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 my argument that Doctor Who has no meaningful definition of work canon. I I do love seeing David Tennant as a Doctor. He is still my sure my mid Who Doctor of choice. Spoiler I, for future episodes if you didn't know. Can't, can't argue with that. Um. Uh. The, 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 the Ronson subplot uh, is ultimately it, – it's interesting um, from, a, from a cultural perspective uh, because it's the last gasp of scientists are all reasonable people arguments that we talked about a little bit in the early 60s. That was very much a staple of science fiction. Um, the uh, Inferno was very much a strong direction towards, hey, maybe all scientists aren't reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, and Doctor Who will continue on that vein and eventually completely remove the whole scientists are inherently uh, uh, reasonable people. But we see the last kind of gasp of it in, in Ronson in this – again, very kind of Terry Nation probably component of it of like if, if two scientists sit down to talk things out, good things will result. Um, so Ronson's kind of an interesting point where uh, on the one hand – we do need someone who's vaguely sympathetic to try to get it in for the doctor, to try to change society. Uh, but on the other hand, we do know that Nazi scientists were pretty awful fucking people. <laughs> so yeah. 
it, 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 it helps that the scientific elite are not homogenous in this, uh, that, that there are other scientists who also play different roles in this. So Ronson can stand somewhat as a character as opposed to standing for all college scientists in this role. Um, but uh, uh, Ronson kind of is is wishy-washy and that's okay right i mean he's not he, his character is just kind of a meek scared scientist who's not too kind of just terrified of, Dal of davros and doesn't really want to cross him but understands that these things are unethical so maybe he should do something but then he does a shitty job of rebelling until he hooks up with the scientific or the the military elite who actually do then bolder him ronson's is, is kind of a mess with character but again that i think that's okay because others we see other scientists who are just more explicitly evil but that's how well i think that that is the perfect epitome of how humans are though yeah at the great. end of the day like that is a perfect portrayal of it like i know that's wrong but if i say something is wrong that i'll get equivalently punished for it and i don't want to get punished for it but i'd like to do something to help but i don't want to like do do something right um and, and and then we start getting into what's really i think fascinating about this is the double game at davros plays right um mm -hmm. one of the one of the reasons this is one of the few times where a, a long run of episodes actually makes sense for the story because you need the room for davros to play both sides against the middle here um, and so he straight up sells out the the college and gives the fall leaders this chemical formula, which we then find out in the next bit, it was not actually that. Uh, but again, we don't have any concept for who Davros is going to be. He's just a character in the serial. So maybe he is sympathetic. Maybe he is actually going to turn the corner and never create the Daleks. Okay, we know that's not probably going to happen. But I think even watching this, Zin, you know that was never going to happen. You get that. No, I'm, I'm trying to remember my my episode order, though, because when the doctor says, if you could have a virus that would kill all these people, would you use it? And you have Dav Davros think for like 10 seconds at most and go, yes, I'd use it. It put me above the gods. That removes any thought whatsoever that this is a sympathetic character that would turn turn and do something helpful. That, that is after this scene, to be fair. Okay. Um, uh, so, so there is a, a progression there, but um, I, I agree. It, it, it's, it's a thin hope. Um, it's, it's kind of a faint, but again, it shows that um, at least at this point, uh, uh, there is maybe a, a, a layer to Davros. Like we don't quite know what his motivations are yet. Maybe he does genuinely want to end the war. Um, and to be fair, from his perspective, he does want to end the war, just kind of by obliterating everyone. And putting the Daleks in charge, but you know, kind of a Doctor Doom move. Oh yeah, the there's a lot of Doctor Doom Davros. If I ruled it, <laughs> right? Oh no, there, there is Davros, Magneto, Doctor Doom. They're all kind of in that same rough template of of, of bombastic supervillain that has a point unless you actually think about it for five seconds, and then it's like, no, you're kind of an evil dickhead. But I love yeah. the fact that you proclaim. So, but I'm, I'll, I'll end it by saying that your hope for Davros is much like all the people that were watching the um, Peter Jackson Hobbit movies thinking, you know what? Maybe that Gollum guy won't sell them out. Yeah. Maybe the guy named literally Wormtongue has some valid points. Yeah. <laughs> but you were saying, my friend, I, I deviated uh, off into. That's fine. Uh, uh, next section. Um, uh, the Doctor and Harry make their way to the Thal Dome and rescue Sarah. Quick, quick side note. These two people have been at war on this planet for centuries, and they live like five minutes from each other. Anyway, uh, 
<laughs> However, the doctor is captured by the Thals as the missile strikes the college dome, wiping out all but those in the bunker. Davros accuses Ronson of giving the Thals the chemical formula and then orders the Daleks to kill him and convinces the remaining leaders to let him have his Daleks attack the Thal dome. The Dalek attack kills many of the Thals, and the Doctor, his companions, and the surviving Muto, Thals and Mutos make their way to the college bunker. The Doctor instructs the Thals and Mutos to find a way to destroy the bunker while he and his companions go inside to recover the time ring. While there, the Doctor is captured by Davros, who discovers the Doctor knows the future of the Daleks and forces the Doctor to record all he knows so that Davros can program the Daleks to avoid failure in the future. Um, so, uh, there's a lot kind of side switching that happens in this thing i think we're in there on episode three and four here so there's a lot of kind of but they're going over here and they're going over here so we're cutting back and forth between these two uh, a fair bit and the doctor and the <laughs> sarah are just bouncing between these two domes like it's nothing <laughs> this period this piece here reminds me the most of the original daleks episode with them going underground through the tunnels that is what this is a direct yes. reference to for me for the entire time watching it because it was still why the fuck are we wasting all our time doing this I know you say it needed the room to breathe. I think this would have been an exceptional five-episode serial, like perfect, because there is enough there is enough blow to make it four, but there's enough that five would like get rid of some of the excess. I, I agree. The middle part does drag a bit. And in fact, um, uh, there is a uh, ninety-minute cut of this serial. Um, in fact, it was actually uh, aired in theaters briefly when this came out in Blu-ray. Um, and I actually went, there's a theater happened to be by my house at the time that I went to go watch it. So like, there's a, a nice 90 minute cut that you don't miss much. And a lot of it is this bit cut down. So you're absolutely right. When it was airing, did Peter Cushion like spin in his grave thinking, why was an I in that movie? <laughs> just squeaking the Bernie's that shit. Just going to roll him out. <laughs> um, uh, 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 but what's, I mean, but again, there's, there's, um, what's kind of interesting at this point point is that uh we see that davros is gen is, is is politically savvy while simultaneously claiming he doesn't care about politics uh which has some really interesting resonances in 2023 about it's not political i'm just focused on the science and yet he's clearly <laughs> playing politics here um and the fact that he's just straight up uses Ronson, tries to be his friend, and then sells him the fuck out uh, is 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 wonderful. Uh, and one of the things that I actually like about uh, Davros, and one of the few things I will give to the disability metaphor of this, is that even though he is uh, uh, clearly um, very disabled, has a lot of, of physical damage, his charisma still comes across. You can see why people are following Davros, because you know he's got literally a, a camera stuck in his forehead. He's got one working hand. He's in a, a, a chair. And yet you're still like, oh yeah, no, you kind of half believe him. Even as an audience member, it's like, you know, he, he does a really good job of pitching his voice and changing it to kind of get people to care about him. Um, he's using his disability as a way to kind of get people to sympathize with him more than they probably would, which is absolutely a move that some disabled people do, right? I, I'm going to be straight up. Like some people absolutely I have done it before. I, I've used my disability to, to get people to sympathize with me more. Um, it is a move that can be done. Um, and it's an interesting way to show some of that nuance that was probably entirely accidental. Uh, but but it does show that this is a very charismatic person who understands the situation he's in and leverages it to his advantage. It makes him – I think that 
while I agree with you that it lags a bit, there's still a value to the length of showing just how intelligent he is. Because when you get to the scene of De- Deborah's capturing the doctor, interrogating him, there's genuine stakes. This is someone who we feel is on the same level as the doctor and is just as intelligent as him. Uh, I agree. That's why I said five and not four. But right, right. And it is rare that in Doctor Who we actually have the doctor, I don't want to say admire someone, but almost acknowledge how brilliant they are for what they're doing. Yeah. And that is something that occurs a few times actually during Baker's run. The more I think about it, that is interesting and something I may want to try to delve into later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, especially early Tom Baker, uh, he is really good at, because he's so bombastic when he looks like he's scared of, or at least intimidated by someone, you feel that because, because Tom Baker is so good at feeling invulnerable as a doctor. So when he's on the back foot, that matters. And that, that, that communicates a level of stakes. And that's what's happening when we get to this. The scene you're referring to before uh, of him with Davros with the um, hypothetical of what would you do? That's happening here. Um, and you see the horror on the doctor's face when Davros is like, absolutely, that would put me above the gods. Um, and the doctor is, is horrified by this. And we go, wow, we, we recognize this is a genuinely scary villain. And also the doctor is captured. We know on some level that uh, uh, the doctor's going to escape because that's what the show is. But for a moment, it's like, what if he doesn't, you know, because it's not called Davros exterminates the universe. Um, right. Right. It's, it is also interesting the point that Davros acknowledges the doctor's intelligence because after the interrogation, he lets the doctor stay so they can talk as like men of science. Like that is yes. re- a ridiculous move, but it is not at all surprising for someone that is, I would say, Brilliant, but may lack, I'm going to say wisdom, because you would need, otherwise you would have installed other emotions into the dialects with a larger discussion in and of itself right. that we're not going to have today. But that he wants to have that conversation with someone that he considers a peer. Right. But also, again, it's subtle because, like, well, subtle in air quotes here. Uh, this is not a subtle serial, but um, he's also playing on the doctor's vanity. Mm-hmm. No, let us talk now as men of science and the way he pitches it it's a bit of like if you don't agree with me then you're therefore admitting you're not a man of science and i know that yep. is a point with you brilliant it's so good so good <laughs> david wisher is fantastic as davros um and this is another time where the writing and the script reinforces the brilliance that the actor is bringing mm-hmm. yeah uh, the, uh, the the actors and the script are working on very different are working working in conjunction here and both are being elevated as a result it's it's really fantastic these are some of the most iconic scenes in doctor who and there's a reason why um and there's a reason why davros has lasted so long is because of frankly these episodes um this is the well it really a lot of it is this this scene um uh side note um we do have a scene of the doctor describing all of the defeats of the Daleks, um, and they're all wrong. Uh, the canonical explanation is that uh, the doctor lied during all of this, but the novelization has corrected all of those to the actual facts. So it's, it's again, canon's kind of silly. I prefer the thing of the doctor just straight up lying through the whole thing. He's just making shit up. I prefer the fact that he's telling him the truth, but when they actually 
and I use finger quotes, successfully carry out his mission, that alters the timeline somewhat. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Because he is stim- he said he stymied them like a few centuries or maybe a thousand years, which would have impacted the events that have happened up to that point. That's, that's a fair interpretation, too. That's a good point. Um, all right, anything else about this because chunk? If, well, just that if he is lying through all of that, that removes that level of horror that Baker is portraying in that moment and the vulnerability that the doctor has. So that for me as a viewer would lose something. That is an interesting and make, point. Um, and make it less urgent for him to try to acquire the tape, how he does at during the episode. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Okay. Yeah. Then that actually, that I'll, I will adjust to your head cannon. Cause I think that does make more sense now that you say that. I always kind of interpret it as he's, he's lying about some of the details, um, it's still important to get the tape back, but now that you've talked it through, yeah, it's probably better to just retcon it as honestly, you can use a time war, frankly, at this point to uh, time war has changed stuff. Blah. <laughs> or as you time like to say, Canon's not important as Eddie would say. Canon really isn't important. Canon is stupid. You're wrong. Eddie Webb. <laughs> canon is everything. Nothing but canon. Um, <laughs> in the podcast about. Right. All right. So anyway, moving on. Uh, the other scientists working for Davros, now aware of his plans, free the Doctor and give him enough time to rig the Dalek incubation room with explosives, which will end the threat of the Daleks. I'm actually going to... As he's about to touch the two exposed wire ends to set them off, he hesitates, questioning whether he has the right to make that decision. I'm actually going to stop there because... It is the most is iconic, the iconic scene of Doctor Who in yeah. history. Yes. Yes. Full stop. Um, New and old. That was, that was the, the quote I pulled from the... Do I have the right speech? Um, a lot of times when this is shown, and even when I quoted it, um, there's uh, uh, Sarah Jane is talking to him during a speech. And sometimes it gets lost. Uh, and it's, what's mildly frustrating about how people have remembered this speech is that Sarah Jane is objectively right. Because she says, why, why you, they're the Daleks. You absolutely can kill them. And he's like, well, I don't know. I don't think I have the right. Like, no, you fucking do, right? Um, and that's what I think is really so fantastic about the speech is that uh, the doctor is thinking about this on a ideological level, and Sarah is thinking about this on a practical level. And how Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen are pitching this is a great because to the doctor, this is a kind of a moral high level concern and Sarah's like why in the fuck are you not blowing them up right now <laughs> she's being very practical about this and it shows the reason why the doctor needs companions in a way that is very kind of show don't tell um, and no point does it like oh damn this is why the doctor needs humans around but we in this audience absolutely this because we are completely agreeing with Sarah Jane it's like of course it's the Dalish you, you have to do this um, and so uh, – and what's more interesting is that um, – uh, to, to continue to recap, um, we were, he's relieved to learn that Davros agreed to stop and allow the cow leaders to vote on the Tushin project. Uh, so he doesn't have to make the choice here. He, he, he gets to opt out. And again, what's interesting is that at this point in the serial, we know Davros is straight up a fucking liar. Right? He's <laughs> lied and manipulated constantly through this. And for the doctor to go, oh, I completely believe this is happening. He's being a coward here, right? He, he's 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 taking the easy out. 
And that's interesting. We, we, we're seeing a doctor who's actually second-guessing himself, which is different from Pertwee. Pertwee never had these kinds of debates, right? <laughs> you know, The third doctor absolutely was, was nothing but confidence. And the fourth doctor eventually becomes that, but we're not quite there yet. This is a doctor that's still figuring himself out to a certain level. We're still in season one of Tom Baker. And so it's really interesting to have him go, to, to kind of just, okay, I don't have to make the decision anymore. And quickly do that, even though Eve, Harry's even like, are you sure? <laughs> when Harry Sullivan is going, hey, maybe he's lying? You should probably think about that. Oh, God. Uh, yes, that is that is too spot on to really perfect. <laughs> um, but again, it's – there's a lot of, of – of, of, characterization and moral complexity and whatnot. It's just frustrating that too many fans look at that and go, well, the doctor is right. We shouldn't commit genocide. And it's like, there's a lot more going on in just that scene. If you watch the whole scene, you see that there's actually a, and again, in 2023, in, in, even in the 80s, in the early 80s, it's like, yes, you should punch Nazis, right? So that was still not a debate. Um, 2023, you're like, yes, you should punch Nazis. That's not really a debate. Uh, except for some people who do debate that and people who do debate that are wrong um <laughs> so it seems like the doctors on we're on the wrong side of this debate but to continue the recap here i, I want to pause there because i want to talk about that before i talk about the next bit um as the leaders gather for the vote the doctor is able to recover the time ring and destroy the recordings he made so he gets time is now safe again and they can escape um and he learns that the falls and mutas have prepared a means to destroy the bunker as the vote is called, Davros reveals it's all a decoy, giving dogs he sent to destroy the Thal's time to return to the bunker to exterminate the remaining uh, Khalids. So the doctor goes back to set off the explosives. That's the other piece that people seem to forget. The doctor says, nope, you're right. She murdered them and tries to actually, he does actually commit. He just takes a break in the middle of that. And I think that's better. I frankly think that's better because it shows that the doctor can make mistakes. He will eventually get there in the end. But sometimes he makes mistakes, and so that's one of, the, one of the reasons why I love the Fourth Doctor is because um, he's arrogant. But when his, especially when someone like Sarah Jane gets stand up to him and he realizes his flaws, he will eventually make the right decision. But given the tyrants he's fought all the way up to this point in time, the own, the bureaucratic society that he comes from, there is little reason to believe that Davros would have stood down. Like there are so many reasons that he already knows it wouldn't have worked. So I understand convincing yourself that this thing is going to work so you don't have to do it. But as a viewer, it is frustrating. Oh, sure. Right. I mean, I, I, I'm with you, but I, I, I'm not saying it's, it's not frustrating. It is because you, you, you're like, why? You're like, why is the doctor doing this? Um, and it's because – and again, this is one thing where I think it ages in hindsight is because I keep thinking of Eccleston, right, the ninth doctor. Um, when it's like, are you uh, a, a warrior or a coward? And he goes, coward, every time. That helps to contextualize this scene. The doctor wants to talk people out of problems. That's his ultimate he, – he really wants people to just talk and get together. That's what he really wants. And occasionally he makes the wrong decision in aim of that ideological goal, which, again, why Sarah Jane is perfect for him because Sarah Jane does not have the luxury of being ideological. As a feminist, she has to constantly – practically make day-to-day -day decisions to, 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 to exist in those spaces. Um, and so that's the reason why they work really well together is because she will constantly push him. It's like, 
But what about now? What about what's happening now? These are fascists. They are objectively hurting people, and the person you are trusting has absolutely proven to you by capturing you and telling you to your face he would murder people with the virus. Why are you believing this? <laughs> yes. So, so it is frustrating, but I do. Believe, I personally believe it's intentional. I believe that's very much Robert Holmes going. You want to kind of. It helps to solidify the narrative on the companions a bit more and give the fact give those roles more weight with something that frankly has not happened a lot in Doctor Who previously. But at the same time, it also then allows him to let the Doctor remain, and I'm using finger quotes again for this hero for the audience as they watch it to keep them on the Doctor's side. Um. So uh, the rest of the rest of the serial um, is, is really just payoff. Uh, uh, the Doctor. Escapes before the bomb caves in the bunker, uh, which traps Davros and the Daleks. Uh, I want to. I want to point out specifically that the Doctor may go back to do it, but the Doctor isn't the person that does it. It's the Dalek that, if I remember, that rolls over it that causes yes. it to happen. Yes. So the Doctor fails again, and the impetus of the marginal success he got is because of Daleks themselves, which lets him still still remain a hero in all standing because he was going to go back to do it, but then he still didn't have to do it, but it still happened. Oh, that's a, that's a good point because um, – uh, thank you for reminding me. Uh, that's one thing I want to bring up uh, is that, that that scene actually is kind of ground zero for the the Doctor Doesn't Kill argument, which if you actually watch Doctor Who, has zero weight. But yeah. it keeps popping up because of that scene. It's the, the Doctor didn't kill the Daleks. He just happened to arrange things in a way that the Daleks killed themselves almost in a Seventh Doctor style of way. And, you know, it's, <laughs> the, the Doctor kills people. The Doctor is – directly and indirectly responsible for a lot of deaths um, because he is an action hero and an action serial. And that is the thing that happens in those kinds of serials. Right. Um, so it's a bit weird to have the, the doctor never kills thing. And, and to be fair, the new old, new, new, new series um, has been continually challenging that. I've actually been playing with that space a bit more, which is interesting. Uh, but here we're in this kind of weird space of we can't show the doctor actually killing people because of damage and practices and what's going on. Um, and but regardless of the depth of the show and the episode they're portraying here at the time when it's aired, it is still aimed at children. Right. So that mm -hmm. is something to constantly remember as we're talking about these episodes. And that's potentially one of the reasons they pull back how they do and the amount of forward leaning they and cynicism they've done to put in this episode is one of the things that starts to hurt them throughout Baker's run. That becomes an ongoing challenge for the show going forward. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, in a lot of ways you can almost see kind of the two paths that, that could have happened here. Right. Um, like a doctor that continually second guessed himself and, and, uh, uh, wasn't sure of himself could have been how this good, but to be honest, the way Tom Baker plays the character, that was never a realistic option. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go the invulnerable route. Um, it's not, we're not gonna get to Peter Davidson until we actually get uh, a, a doctor who doubts and second guesses himself, uh, which we'll get to. We'll talk about that in Peter Davidson. Uh, anyway. Uh, so um, in the uh, Davos and Daleks are trapped. Uh, Davos realizes the Daleks, actually have gained will of their own and refuse to take orders from a non-Dalek. He tries to stop the production line with a big convenient button under his hand, uh, but he gets shot by Daleks 
800. You, you got to, my friend, you're all about going directly for dessert. I keep trying to like hold you up. <laughs> We're not a dessert yet. We've had dinner. They're taking away our plates right now. And they're like giving us coffee, maybe a little something in between. Davros orders, oh God, I think his name's Nader, to go push the button. Yeah. And his, his loyal assistant, like unbelievably loyal, who is faked being part of rebellion and understands the extermination of like the entire like species is there, but it remains loyal to Davros. And one of the reasons... I think Davros is so successful and in charge now is because of this character goes over to push the button and we get the most horrific death scene from a dialect. Oh yeah. Ever. Hands down modern day, everything. And it's just like the flashing of colors and like the pain, the actors going through to portray it. That is the most graphic scene in a totally ungraphic way I've ever seen in my entire life. And it is beautifully executed and shows the power of the Daleks. Look at that. I use the power of the Daleks. Yeah, power of the Daleks. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and to be fair, uh, we haven't talked much about Nader, uh, but but really briefly, uh, Nader's also fantastic, and one of the components I think of the, sh the show that even we kind of forgot to talk about, um, uh, because he he's all much like Dav. I think part of the reason because he's doing much like Harry and the Doctor, kind of filling off the same role. Nader and Davros are kind of doing the same thing, um, because Nader's also the utter manipulative Nazi. Um, except that Nader has more opportunities to try to seem like he's sympathetic and then just absolutely turns on the people he's manipulating to prove that he is relentlessly loyal to Davros. Um, but again, the guy who plays him does a really fantastic job of, of selling that. And you're right. He, um, he does a beautiful job of dying here to make that the, the Daleks seem so scary because that now now they have even turned on their create their creator uh and that, that they and then they give that iconic uh, uh speech of um you know uh, i don't remember the, the the lines of it i just remember that uh the these are the lines that were taken for the doctoring the tardis elf song that was <laughs> burned in my head we we are a superior species is the one line i remember um uh, but that, this is a serial they, they pulled those samples from. I remember that. Doctrine of the um, Tardis is a great, great album. It, so all both sides, all two songs on it. <laughs> uh, it was such a God. It was the nineties are so weird. Um, Love it. Because why? Why did that song exist? I'm glad it exists. But why did that song exist? Uh, but yeah. Um, to your point earlier, uh, this is when the dogs become genuinely scary again because we have basically three Daleks. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, there's 20, but we see three on screen. And basically Davros has stage managed this entire war to where he could try to get both sides to obliterate each other so he could control things. And the Daleks just swoop in and take over everything. And they have been steadily establishing that Davros built these things a very specific way. And they're now doing exactly what he designed them to do. Yep. Uh, so very Greek tragedy. He is destroyed by his own design and hubris. It's a very methodical way of setting up his own downfall, and it's 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 great. It's great structure. You'd almost say that he uh, lacks wisdom. Um, <laughs> joke just for myself back. But <laughs> no, it's it is beautifully done, and like that is why this episode is still a classic to today. And one of the things, though, if you start reading up on the episode at all, people will complain and say, this is not the Dalek episode. 
because it doesn't follow the format of a normal Doctor Who Dalek episode would. Mm-hmm. And I think that is to the betterment of the episode. I, I completely agree. Um, I, I, I'm with you in the sense that, to be honest, the so-called Dalek episodes are generally boring. The ones that break the mold are the more interesting ones. Like the, the, again, the Axel episode called Dalek is not mm-hmm. at all a classic Dalek episode and it's one of the best Dalek episodes in Doctor yes. Who. Um, that is because that was that that takes what's happening here and goes one single Dalek is scary by itself. A damaged, nearly insane Dalek <laughs> is scary by itself. Um, uh, so I mean, it's it's a really good way to kind of of reestablish this. Um, and I mean, the, the rest of it is basically just the Doctor admitting that he didn't succeed, but he didn't fail. He set their like to the point line me earlier. They set their evolution back a thousand years. Um, which in time travel terms is basically a loss, but we'll pretend it's a win. Um, and uh, he makes the other really frustrating moral line, um, which kind of undoes some of the goodwill from earlier, which is that out of the Dalek's evil, good will always arise to challenge them. And I, it, as I've gotten older, I've gotten less and less sympathetic to that line because it's it's very mind of like, it reminds me of um, uh, I don't remember who said it, but one singer she said like, yeah, well, yeah, everything sucks right now, but at least we'll get good good art out of it. And it's like that's not a good reason to oppress and horrify people. <laughs> we should. And so it's the well, yeah, it's evil and people are gonna die, but you know, at least good things come out of it. And it's like it's 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 a weak it's a weak moral argument, and so it's kind of it frustrating here at the ends. Perpetuating the generational war on Scarrow to a universal standard. Right. Um, so, I will go back so and point that, out to me. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You finish uh, yours. No, mine no. is not going to be pertinent. Oh no. I, I would. I always just say is like um, then we have some uh, uh, silly time ring nonsense. Where we all grab the time ring and spin around in a circle and fly off in space. Thank you. That's exactly where it's going. We've done this too long together because we're going for the same jokes. <laughs> <laughs> that the jankiness of the time ring. If you have to hold on to it, and it shakes that much. Utterly unreliable, and that is why I said at the start of the episode. Why the fuck would you use a tie break? It's it's it, it does what it needs to do, which is it gets us from one bad story to another bad story. But in the middle is a really good story. <laughs> That's why I'm a fan of the vortex manipulator. <laughs> Straps on your wrists, like. Doo, 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 doo. But right. that doesn't exist yet. Doesn't exist yet. Um, final thoughts about. Uh, the Genesis Daleks. It is still an amazing episode. I still wholeheartedly believe that if they're going to go back, they're going to start cutting episodes down to make them more appealing to a more modern audience. Mm-hmm. They could do, they should do that with this one because mm-hmm. it would hit unbelievably well in modern day, even seeing it now, if it was shorter and made a little bit more on point. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, We've said everything you can say about this episode because everyone talks about it. When you think Doctor Who, this is one of the classic episodes that you always see, top of the list. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely um, a one I one of the ones I've watched more than any other, with the exception of maybe Curse of Fenric. Right, um, I, I've seen this a lot, uh, and again, like like I said before, there was a theatrical showing of it, and I absolutely went to go by myself to go watch it again because my family's like going, "Why are we watching this?" 50 year old episode. It's like, I have to go see it. Yes, this is Um, I, and I've seen, I thought you said, 
that you watch Paradise Towers and Ghostlight more than you've seen any other episodes of Doctor Who. No, I said I, I said I will defend Paradise Towers. I'd not say I, I've watched it more. Oh, I, I'm I, sorry. I, Your favorite episode is Ghostlight. That no, that's, that's you said. That was your. That was you. That was all you. I don't I, like half episodes, half of a story being shown on the screen personally. But you know, we are so gonna have to cover Ghostlight <laughs> one day. Oh, um, but all you're right. right. Honestly, I mean, it, it, this this is covered by any Doctor Who podcast ever. But we, I, I'm still glad we covered it. Uh, it this is this is fantastic. So, uh, what is your other quote? What is your other so thing? no Eddie suggested Genesis of the Dots. I was like, why are we doing that? Everyone does it. I think we should go and do cover God the Sunmakers, or I mean, I don't threaten me with a good time because the Sunmakers is a fantastic exploration of a of a of a scriptwriter who's really pissed off at his taxes and wants to <laughs> bitch about it for four episodes. I love the Sunmakers. <laughs> so that is a rabbit hole that someone can go down because I can tell you that. We will not be covering the Sunmakers, at least in this iteration. Uh, My quote, all right. You know, the very powerful and the very stupid have one thing in common. They don't alter their views to fit the facts. They alter the facts to fit the views, which can be uncomfortable if you happen to be one of the facts that needs altering. One of my favorite fourth doctor quotes. Love it. And it was was Uh, hard to pick because he had such a long run. There's so many great quotes to choose from. I mean, that, that's a good point that we haven't talked about real quick, but is that um, the fourth doctor is so quotable. I mean, all the doctors are quotable, but the fourth doctor in particular is Baker has a lot of fantastic lines and he's delivered them so well. It's, 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 you're spoiled for choice. So a, a slight tangent for that. And for the new who, do you know, the Pandora open speech that um, Smith gives? Mm-hmm. There is at least a McCoy recording of him giving the speech. I want to say there's one other doctor too. And that is become like something I love to do because I'd love to hear the, the other doctors do some of the previous doctor speeches to see how the inflections hit differently. Yeah, that would be cool. That would be a bit like um, watching different actors play Shakespearean plays and how which spin they give yeah. On, on. Yeah, that would be, that would be really cool actually. Um, do we have a note for the audience? We do. Um, so uh, we're going to take a quick digression uh, next week because at the time you're listening to this, uh, we are right before the holidays. So we're going to do another Christmas episode uh, this year. Um, it's not going to be a Batman a movie because Chris will murder me if, if I make mm-hmm. him do that again. Um, so, uh, Chris, what are we watching? Cats the musical because Eddie has requested oh, that we God. watch that horrible oh, Cats movie with uh, – Idris Elba, who I don't know how they got him to be in it, but he did. And money, money is the reason why they got him into it. All right, so no, we're not going to watch Cats. The same thing as it was. Um, instead, we're going to do Scrooged, who, which is a favorite movie of our guest, who I will not say who it is until you listen to the episode. It is their favorite movie for the holiday season. Indeed, indeed. Um, so, a, a quick look ahead. Um, for the upcoming year is that we're going to be doing that. We're going to come back to the fourth doctor uh, after this, which we'll announce in a second. Um, and then we've been talking about this before. Uh, uh, we're not going to do big, long runs anymore. We're going to start breaking nope, things nope. up. So after, <laughs> after we uh, wrap up the fourth doctor, we're going to take a short break from classic doctor who, and we're going to do some, uh, a, a group, a short run of things. We're calling it technically criminals doing good. Um, we'll announce those as they come up. Uh, and then after we do those, we'll go back and finish our classic who run. Um, we're still, debating the end of that right now because we have to figure out how we're going to do with McGann. Uh, and then we'll but, take another break 
to do a different little mini series of shows. Right. And then at, we'll have to make a decision on what we're doing after that. I have some ideas, but we'll figure it out. Uh, so it's going to be a little odd, uh, but uh, we're going to have Christmas episode, then fourth doctor, then other stuff, then fifth doctor. So just to get folks ready for the my fourth doctor episode pick, and the reason we had to switch host like this, I have went with the pirate planet. Why uh, the pirate planet? Because there are some beautiful lines in it, but I love Romana number one. And there's no way I could have done a fourth doctor spin and not have Romana one. It was, it was, I didn't know which East space one to do. Sorry. Key to time one to do. It was very difficult, Yeah, but that's the one I chose. Cause I like the first really? one. <laughs> I, I like the first one where that the wind cuts through me like a laser is like a line I love, <laughs> but it is not good, but it has some nice quips between them. So it boiled down to either the pirate planet or the stones of blood. And I chose a pirate planet because I want to say Mr. Vilbury in my pirate voice throughout the whole episode. Oh, it is. It is. It is. There'd be a lot of fun stuff to talk about that. And also uh, fun to talk about the writer for that, which we won't spoil. Eddie, if people are looking to purchase some of your sweet, sweet swag, remember, you can't just run through it because we had it. One of our listeners say they want to hear you loudly and slowly say where people can get your stuff to keep you coming back to the podcast because you need to make money to waste your time to come do this with me. Uh, I don't want to. No. Um, <laughs> if you want to buy my creator-owned stuff, um, the best way to do that is, frankly, uh, if you love dogs, if you love um, fantasy role-playing games, check out realmsofpugmire.com. That's my uh, fantasy dog game. Um, and cats and mice and rats. Uh, so go check that out. It's totally not a science fiction game. It's completely a fantasy game, I swear. Uh, and that is, uh, I, I get a, a percentage of royalties from all of those games. That's the best way to, to financially support me. But if you're just curious about anything I've worked on um, or, or my uh, a career, which is every time I think about how long it's been, I kind of seize up, but it's been a while. Um, you can find a lot of that at uh, pugsteady.com. That's P U G. S-T-E-A-D-Y. Um, and from there you can get links to all of the stuff I've worked on. Uh, but if you actually just want to talk with me, um, you can find me on the, the Darker Hue Discords where uh, I currently I'm telling Chris that, uh, yes, I finally read Blue Marble and yes, it is exactly as cool as uh, I was told it would be. Awesome. Which which means I'm going to probably want to do a Blue Marvel speechless run that Eddie will have to like lead and spearhead because... The comic runs are Eddie leads, and I get to add in <laughs> witty, witty commentary on the side. Um, but if you're looking to buy my stuff, you can go to the Darky website. If you buy it there, I get about 90% of everything that's not shipping. Or you can go to IPR and buy some stuff there, which I get a small percentage, or Chaosium, where I get a tiny percentage. Otherwise, I'm hanging in the Discord, talking about the games I want to run if I had more time. Ah, that's that's the curse of being an adult um so cool so with all that um we will see you all next week for christmas with scrooge and after that we'll see you on the pirate planet happy holidays